Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. My guest today is Carol O'Donnell, Executive Director of the Smithsonian Science Education Center here in Washington, D.C. The Smithsonian Science Education Center was established in 1985 under the sponsorship of the Smithsonian Institution and the National Academy of Sciences. And it's the only organization at the Smithsonian that is solely dedicated to K-12 education. So it's focused on promoting STEM teaching, that's science, technology, engineering, and math teaching and learning, ensuring diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion in STEM, and advancing STEM education for sustainable development. So it's mostly this last part of the Education Center's work that we're going to talk about today. We'll learn about the organization's programs and resources for teaching environment and sustainability topics to the K-12 group, including climate change, and how teachers and parents and all of us can engage kids in science data and discourse about the environment. Stay with us. Carol, hello. It's really great to talk with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Margaret, for inviting me. So before we dive into the heart of our conversation, we always like to start our show by learning a little bit more about our guests and how they came to do what they do. So can I ask you to share just a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so I was a first-generation college student on financial aid, you know, who lived in the inner city of Pittsburgh in the early 80s. And environmental issues due to pollutants, you know, that were caused by our local steel mills, which were pretty prominent in Pittsburgh, although not so much today. You know, advanced education opportunities were really limited. Um, So when I was given the unique opportunity to go to college, I quickly realized the impact that a good education would have on promoting economic and social mobility. And ever since then, Margaret, I have made education my life's work. You know, my my four children, um, who are all adults now, and my husband would probably describe me as a workaholic. I'm not sure I like that. But um, I like to think of myself as someone who's really tirelessly advocating for the promotion of education. Um, So in addition to serving as a classroom teacher in Virginia public schools, which is where I live, I've worked at George Washington University. That's where I got my doctorate, the U.S. Department of Ed. And of course, now I'm here at the Smithsonian, where I've been for 18 years. In it, you know, in addition to being a science nerd, which I think you probably are too, I have also worked to improve access to science education for all people, especially those who are excluded from education opportunities because of who they are and where they live. You know, think back again. You know, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and and there were just people in my neighborhood who just weren't expected to go to college, and that's not okay. So I've really dedicated my life to thinking about the fact that all people should have access to education. And, you know, at the Smithsonian Science Education Center, as you noted, you know, we engage K through 12 teachers to develop and implement strategies that we call, and this is just one of our programs, Universal Design for Learning. And this program in particular is important to me because we're focused on trying to get students with mental and physical disabilities to really see STEM as accessible to them. Um, This program in particular is something that's near and dear to my heart because my husband was a special education teacher for 30 years and you know we want to make certain that all students have access to STEM and today when you and I talk we're going to talk about how we also use sustainability topics 
help students engage in STEM. So anyway, I just want to say thank you, you know, for inviting me. And, and please know that, you know, STEM education has a lot of different access points. You know, my own four kids are all focusing on STEM careers. But I think together, all of us, no matter what our career is, including what you do, including the people who are listening to this podcast, I think together, helping to ensure a sustainable planet, that's our goal. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Smithsonian Science for Global Goals Project, Carol. And um, that project provides young people around the world, not just in the U.S., but around the world with um, sort of knowledge and skills to dig into the science that underlies the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So I'm thinking that many of our listeners may know about these goals, but the, the U.N. has established 17 sustainable development goals that range from poverty, hunger, and health goals to affordable and clean energy, clean water, sanitation, action on climate change, and more. So you all have linked to this project in broad terms to the UN goals. So can you tell us a little bit about how that works, why you decided to build off the UN goals, and just a little bit more about that effort? Yeah, absolutely. The um I mean, I guess we've been living through this for the past three years, but sometimes these world emergencies absolutely make us reconsider the way that we educate our youth. So while recently we've been thinking specifically about COVID and COVID-19 in particular, this project started in 2016. So let's rewind to January 2016. It was about four months after I had just returned to the Smithsonian, you know, now serving as the executive director. I had been gone for two decades, and it was January of 2016. I was in Santiago, Chile at this global council meeting of the Inter-Academy Partnership, which is a collaboration of 143 countries who have national academies. And you mentioned at the beginning, you know, our center was founded by both the Smithsonian and the U.S. National Academies. So we were at this meeting in Santiago, Chile, and I don't know if you remember this, but Zika was really prevalent at the time, even though mosquito-borne diseases kill about a million people a year, it was suddenly creeping in on the U.S. and it was spreading around the world and people were really concerned about it. And so all of these scientists basically said, we've got to make a difference. We've got to do something to educate youth on the underlying science and social science of mosquito-borne diseases. So with the financial support of the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, we were able to get started. But the problem was we didn't have a framework because there was no broad curriculum standards for science education for the globe. So in the U.S., when students learn something, they're using U.S. standards. But if you want to educate students on a complex topic across the entire globe, you need a framework. And so that's where the U.N. Sustainable Development Goals came into play. You know, for for your listeners, um, as you noted, you know, this is this compendium of the world's most pernicious and damaging problems. And they're referred to as the SDGs you referenced. Sometimes they're called the global goals. And they provide this unique opportunity to ground student learning in real world pressing global issues. And so we decided to use it as a framework for learning. It opened up the doors for us to be able to help students understand not only the science, but the social science and this spirit of action taking that is absolutely necessary if we want to meet those goals by 2030. So today, you know, over 41,000 educators from 88 countries serving 4.7 million students have, you know, have been engaged in some way. And so we, we appreciate that broader framework, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Right. So I read your paper that talks about this project and that's a 
you co-authored paper you recently published in Frontiers in Communication, where you kind of dis- describe the Science for Global Goals Project's approach, and you call it data, discourse, and development. So can you tell us a little bit about this? And in particular, I'd, I'd like you to talk about the data component. So at Resources for the Future, as an economist, we're we're really into data, so we like this. But you have this is the idea that young people learn how to gather, interpret, analyze data, and build what you call data literacy skills. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, we, it's funny because I agree with you, you know, um, this idea of how do we use data? Is it economists, of course, care about data? Certain uh, professions care about data, but what do students do in classrooms in order to better understand and how to, how to use data and what it means? Um, Over, again, I'll go back to COVID-19, you know, we, definitely we started to realize this uh, pressure that was put on us because we were seeing data in real time and people either believed the data or they didn't. And all of a sudden, um, the science uh, was impacted by whether or not what people weren't realizing, like how to use the data, how to interpret the data. So while science was playing out in front of us in the public and information was flying and people were trying to communicate information about the importance of COVID-19, um, we started to realize, look, this is actually really important. Uh, when we are engaged in global discourse around data, it allows us to engage in development, sustainable development. So um, the problem, however, is that data can be misused and the public can question the validity of data. They don't know who to trust, where are they gonna get their data from? They begin to become concerned about what the data actually means. So we saw that play out with COVID-19. The same can be true of climate change, of other environmental issues. So some science educators right now are being challenged. They're actually being asked to avoid discussing certain topics that relate to data. And all of this is emblematic of an even larger problem, which is the inability of people to understand data, use data, and make informed decisions about the data. And so in that article that you mentioned that was published in Frontiers, we describe how the Smithsonian Science for Global Goals Project basically invites these young people, which are range in age from about 8 to 17, to use data to change discourse, so the things they talk about, and then to develop their own communities, of course, being inspired by the SDGs. So our pedagogical approach, um, our way of thinking or teaching is basically to encourage students to use their community as their laboratory, to conduct investigations in their community, to gather and analyze from their community and build data literacy skills. So that's the data part of it. Second, we then ask them to communicate about the information. What does the information mean to you? Um, Have you noticed any concerns that people might have about, about climate change? And then that's a way, the data then becomes a way of catalyzing conversations, changing community conversations to make sure that they're more informed. And then finally, of course, we want students to then become active partners in creating a more sustainable and equitable community by using the data and the discourse to inform their actions. So this is, you know, this framework, my colleague Heidi Gibson came up with this data discourse development as a way of just framing how important it is for us to get students to collect data from real world problems, real world phenomena, understand it, become informed consumers of data, 
but most importantly, to make sure that the data makes sense to them because it's meaningful and local. Yeah. Yeah. So just to follow up a little bit on this notion of what you mean by data, can talk about how this kind of these activities might vary by age. Like you must expect different things from say a 10 year old or a 16 year old. And, and the second part of that question is, I know when we've talked before you, and you just said it now, you're, you want to use the community as a laboratory. So you try to focus these activities on local communities and issues. So I assume that's intentional to get people kind of motivated. Can you talk about that part a little bit too? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, I guess the first question. So this idea of like, how do data gathering activities vary by age? So in the United States, so we're going to come back in just focusing on the U.S. and we're not thinking about global science education right now. So in the U.S., um, and this is true of almost every nation, they have a set of standards. Now in the United States, each state sets its standards, but we have coalesced in the U.S. around a set of science standards called the Next Generation Science Standards. Not every state has adopted them, but a majority of states have. But what they've done is they've kind of outlined for students ages 5 to 18 what they should know and be able to do at each grade level. And um, in addition, they've also said, all right, so there's a student should engage in science and engineering practices. And that one of the most important things that practices that we want students to engage in that has to do with data is analyzing and interpreting data. And as you noted, that's a skill that develops over time, and it's not the same for all, all age ranges. So for young students ages 5 to 7, the teacher builds on the student's prior personal experiences, maybe it's at home, progressing kind of gradually to help students collect data, record data, and then share observations about data. And the students might collect the data firsthand, or they might get data from media. But the analysis of the data could range from just making general observations about it, like what what do you notice about the data or what patterns do you see in the data? This is very common for really young students. Um, and that could be either about the natural world, which is science, or the designed world, which is engineering. And usually it's driven by some kind of question that's relevant to the students, but the question is always, unfortunately, seemingly driven by the teacher. Um, now for ages 8 to 11, the students start to be introduced to quantitative data. So now they might shift away from observations of things or objects or pictures, and now they're starting to think about numbers. And they could conduct multiple trials, collect, collect that data, use digital tools, graphically analyze or display the data, and then try to make sense of the phenomenon using kind of reasoning and even computation. Now, as we get older, 12 to 14, now they start to progress to extending their quantitative analysis, you know, thinking about, and, you know, economists think about this all the time, the difference between causation and correlation. They might begin to use basic statistical techniques or look at error analysis. And finally, in secondary school, so ages 15 to 18, students are now really starting to use more refined statistical analysis. They're comparing data sets for consistency. They're using models to generate and analyze data to make valid and reliable scientific claims, and they understand those terms, and they might even determine an optimal design solution. So in each of these cases, um, there's a fairly structured progression of learning, and that's important. 
Now, to get to your second question around kind of local communities and local issues, when you're talking about a transdisciplinary topic like climate change or environmental issues like clean water, clean energy, clean um, air, there are a lot of, just like in any type of science, like there are a lot of different forms of data, observations, ideas, objects, photographs, travel patterns, social data. And so we try to integrate those into the teaching and learning. Uh, now, the question about local communities, local issues is really important. So students in many science classrooms, even in here in the US, we give students data and we ask students to make meaning of the data. And sometimes that's a black box to them. Or we give them an experimental question and we ask them to collect the data, but we're still driving the question for them. And so the idea of creating kind of more localized data collection is that we want it to be contextualized to the problems that students face locally, drawn from even local opinions, say for example, the foundation of surveying, uh, local thoughts, culture, local ways of knowing. So we're really trying to build students' data literacy skills by collecting their own data locally and understanding the issue from a local perspective and then analyzing it and then trying to apply it locally with localized solutions. So that's, I think, the, the biggest difference is really trying to get students to think about how data then helps address local critical issues which is really, again, sustainable development. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you about the discourse component of this sort of three-step approach. And you make the point that the data and data analysis alone aren't enough. We need to help students engage in community discourse. And you've already talked about this a little bit, but you know what, one thing I think we can all agree on is in this day and age, we're kind of sometimes bombarded with misinformation or, or information is not based in data and analysis. You, you mentioned the COVID-19 problems. And so how do you approach this challenge or kind of face these headwinds and get students to really engage in discourse that's about the data? Well, this is, I think this is one of the most important things that have, we've seen changing in science education recently, not only in the U.S., but across the globe. And that's this idea that there's this really important prominent role that discourse has taken in in learning. And that is that students talk to each other. Um, this is not a new idea, but it's certainly one that's taken on more prominence. And by talking to each other, they're making sense of data, they're making meaning of it, they're constructing knowledge. And so in the U.S., back to kind of the, the way students are learning science here, one of the two common science and engineering practices is one, students engaging an argument from evidence, and two, obtaining and evaluating and communicating that information. So in the heart of both of those is discourse. So in order for students to kind of collect data, as you noted, you know, data alone is not sufficient, we also need to help students engage in kind of this local and global community discourse about the data to amplify the science, to help students make sense of the complex scientific issue, you know, to talk about the data in ways that are place-based and relevant so that we can help students understand how and why their values, their identities, their histories might influence their perspective of data. And that perspective on data is incredibly important because again, if we simply give students data, ask them in an singly to kind of analyze the data, 
and they're not engaging in different perspective taking, then I think we remove this incredible barrier that exists when people resist data. So, you know, I guess just to, to wrap it up, it's not enough to know what data means in the abstract. The meaning has to be understood within the context of the local community. And discourse helps us to do that. Mm -hmm. Yep, good point. So I want to talk about the curricula that you have available. Um, this can be found on the Science for Global Goals Project webpage. And one in particular that caught my eye is on environmental justice, which I believe is one of the newest ones you have. So tell us first why you decided to tackle environmental justice as a topic in the project, and then maybe walk us through some of the items in that particular curriculum and what you're trying to achieve there. So the Smithsonian Science Education Center, you know, we're only one of, I think it's like 37 different organizations that make up the Smithsonian. Um, and one of those organizations is the Anacostia Community Museum here in the local DC area. And they actually are just launching an environmental justice center. So this topic is incredibly important to the Smithsonian. And why? You know, because we have 21 museums, nine research centers, three cultural centers, a zoo. I mean, we are probably one of the most transdisciplinary places that exist. Plus, we have a leader, Secretary Lonnie Bunch, who has spent his entire career focused on ensuring equity. So that means that inherent in a work like ours, where we're a science education center. So people might say to me, Carol, why are you teaching this? This is a, you're supposed to just be teaching the science of the environment. When you're embedded in an organization, an institution like the Smithsonian, the idea is that learning is transdisciplinary and cultural, no matter what its topic. And so learning about science has to be grounded in cultural context. And I, you, you know, you're going to hear that theme kind of over and over in this, in this podcast. And that's why environmental justice and the environmental justice guide we developed was so crucial to this project. So for some specifics about the guide, it helps people learn, young people learn, ages 8 to 17, more about the concerns of their community to so that they're communicating accurate, helpful, trusted information about environmental justice. So there are these eight investigations that are all hands-on that students engage in to do what we call discover, understand, and act. So students learn about how they interact with their environment, they define environment using their own definition, they research environmental justice issues throughout history. They learn about a specific environmental issue in their community that's relevant to their area and the causes of this particular problem. Um, they examine how different environments can make people more or less healthy. And again, using their community as their lab. They discover the themes of injustices. They learn to understand solutions to environmental problems and then of course they take action in their own communities. So I'm just going to give you two examples that are my favorite from this particular guide. The first one is students are asked to reflect on, you know, we don't just tell students what does environmental justice mean and then we give them a definition. That's very didactic. We don't do that. Instead we get them to think about real world situations in which environmental injustices and justices have occurred. And I'm going to give you two of these scenarios. So the first one is one country sends old computers, broken phones, and other electronics to another country. Although the other country is paid to take the waste, it exposes their people to toxic materials. 
So we get students to talk about that one scenario. You know, what do you think about this idea? Is this a good idea to do this? Why might this be good or bad, healthy or not healthy for the people in the community? The second scenario is, because you, you never just share one scenario with someone and think they can come up with a definition. So in comparative analysis, you'd give them multiple. So another scenario might be, vehicles go to and from a local warehouse, polluting the surrounding air. Studies show the warehouses are more likely to be built in neighborhoods where many people of color live. So again, students talk about this scenario. They begin to now compare the two scenarios. They begin to also think about and reflect on their own community or other communities they know. And that helps students begin to think about the relevance in their own lives and then create their own, what we call, working definition of environmental justice. So that's like one example of how students engage in a topic from a personal perspective. And then the, the second example, if I could, is where we get students to use the Environmental Protection Agency's EJ screen. And if you haven't seen this, this is the coolest screening tool. It's a screening and mapping tool, and it's available for free. And they made it known to us because we were interviewing them. And what you do is you, you put in your zip code or a zip code of interest to you, and it shows you kind of economic, social, environmental trends in that community. So I did this with my hometown zip code in Pittsburgh. And then I did it with my, my zip code where I live today. And you could see that in my neighborhood where I grew up, which is economically disadvantaged, socially diverse relative to the surrounding neighborhoods, all of a sudden you saw this incredible image emerge in which it was higher incidence of asthma, higher concentrations of pollutants, lower socioeconomic status, and they were all correlated with one another in based on this EJ screener. And so it's a pretty powerful tool to help kids begin to think about a complex abstract topic in a very concrete way. Mm -hmm. Yep, very familiar with that tool and it's really useful. So, um, Carol, I want to take a step back and kind of ask a more general question. Pick your brain as the expert here about just teaching kids about the environment and what's age appropriate. Um, and I'm thinking particularly here about climate change, which can seem on the one hand pretty abstract, especially to younger kids. And maybe on the other hand, overwhelmingly big and hard to deal with for older ones. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any guidance or kind of, especially around the climate change, to know what's right for different ages when you're talking about these these topics. Yeah, so I, I think, first of all, the important thing is that each of these guides is developed by a curriculum developer who has classroom experience. And that's important, right, because they've spent their life focused on understanding the pedagogical and developmental differences between students at different ages. And that's important. Um, but it's not enough. It's still one individual. So we also incorporate youth voices and youth perspective by bringing in high school interns and college age interns into the development process. So they actually become a part of the development of the guides. In addition, we field test the guides with teachers around the world in different regions, so typically seven different regions, to obtain feedback from teachers and students on the usability, feasibility, the implementation of the guide. And then we also try to begin each guide by asking students to create their own identity maps. So if you think about that, 
I could ask you, Margaret, myself, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 18-year-old to all do the same activity, and the results are completely different. And the reason is because it's very personalized. It's very community-based. It's very place-based. So while we might ask general questions, the level of interpretation or data collection or analysis or discourse or development depends on that age range of the individuals doing the activity. So I don't know if that makes sense, but in other words, we apply what we know developmentally about different age ranges, but we also ask questions that no matter what age is responding to it, we provide the support that would allow students of any age to respond. So, you know, this is, this is important um, for us that from the beginning, we're getting students to engage in things like they're developing an identity map where they're thinking about themselves and the things that are of interest to them and then comparing that to the multifaceted identities in their own classroom or their own community. And that allows us to get students to think about complex topics from multiple perspectives. So if you think about environmental issues um, and when you're talking to a group of economists, you might think, all right, if I'm going to talk about the environment, I don't want to just talk about it from an environmental perspective. I want to talk about it from a social, ethical, environmental. And so we're trying to bring in these multiple perspectives so that youth of any age are ability to bring in kind of fundamentally what's important to them. So in our climate action guide, which we're developing right now, not available yet, some of the questions that we ask them that are developmentally appropriate might be, um, what are the direct risks of the climate, not climate change, of the climate to your community? So we might get them to begin to think about the climate, begin to think about how the climate is changing, begin to think about actions that they might take to protect themselves from that changing climate, before we might introduce a construct like climate change. So that is one of the differences, for example, between younger students and older students. We might also get them to think about what words about climate, the climate or climate change, are the most important to them. And again, depending upon their age range, the response is going to be different. Or what are some of the things you think about when different people are talking about climate change? So it allows us to help students to investigate complex topics like the Earth's energy budget or um, how things have changed and humans' influence from a perspective that is um, pedagogically and developmentally appropriate for young people based on the kinds of language that young person uses. So I would just say that, you know, we our approach is to support young people as they become action takers, collecting data in their own communities, but we're scaffolding their development over time based on their their age appropriateness or developmental appropriateness. Right, got it. Well, that's great. It's been great hearing about all of this, Carol, and all the good work you're doing. Um, we're going to close our podcast with a regular feature we have that we call Top of the Stack, where we ask you to recommend some good content to our listeners, whether it's a book, an article, a podcast. So, Carol O'Donnell, what's on the top of your stack? You know, I would probably say science denial. It's called Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. And it's um, one of my favorite books on my shelf. It was written by two educational psychologists, 
who really are trying to understand how individuals decide, you know, whether to accept the human causes of climate change, for example, or whether to vaccinate their children against a childhood disease or whether to practice social distancing during a pandemic. So I really like this book because it outlines the principles that are fundamental to the Smithsonian's mission, which is the increase and diffusion of knowledge. You know, this idea that democracies depend on educated citizens who make informed decisions for the benefit of their health, their well-being, their communities, their nation, and of course, their planet. So I hope that, you know, your readers might take a look at this book, Science Denial, uh, because it, you know, tackles why science denial exists, how do you understand your own biases and those of others, and ways to address the problem. Great. Yeah, I'll be on the lookout for that. Well, Carol, it's been a pleasure having you on Resources Radio. I'm really glad we were able to get people to learn a bit about the Smithsonian Science Education Center and all the great work you're doing. And I really appreciate you taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule to talk to me. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you for the invitation. All right, take care. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.